Listen to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. Today I have two guests. Uh, my first is Dr. Bart Beatty, uh, teaches English out of the University of Calgary and has a wide range of books focusing on comics. I guess probably the most uh, apropos to what we're discussing today is Unpopular Culture Transforming the European Comic back in the 90s. Um, 1990s, I should say, as well as a whole slew of other books, which I'll I'll save our time and suggest going to a friendly book site and googling or googling Bart. As well, my other guest is Kim Thompson, um, one of the co-publishers of Fanographics, which listeners to Ink Studs probably need very little introduction to who they are, considering about half the folks I interview are published by uh, by uh, Fanographics. So, thank you gentlemen for joining me today. Thank oh, you for having me. Um 
the point of today's discussion is partly response. I did this thing where I asked listeners um, what they want to see me cover. And one thing that I think came up a couple of times was a type of Euro comics talk with YouTube. So luckily, we were able to arrange time fairly easily, actually, uh, that you're both available. And so um, maybe what I want to see is, I don't know if I want to say definition, but some kind of idea of what is the European, European comic scene, um, because it is remarkably different from what most listeners and uh, most North American readers are used to within North America. Uh, maybe I should have a caveat and exclude Quebec because their scene is, uh, I think, a lot more in common with what's going on in Europe than the rest of North America. Um, so to start out, in North America we kind of know our roots in the comics is pretty easily defined with Marvel, DC, underground comics, black and white boom, to where we are today post all of that and mini comics. Where would you see is kind of the real beginning of a strong European comic scene? Well, I think when we talk about comics um, in Europe, you're really talking about um, about several different national tendencies. And I think that's important to know. I mean, it's, it's, if we said uh, that we were talking about the North American film industry, for example, we would say, oh, well, you've got Hollywood, you've got American independence, then you've got a small amount of Canadian film, and you've got a much smaller amount of Mexican film, and a very, very small amount of film from countries uh, south of Mexico. It's a sort of similar in Europe. When you talk about European comics, I think many people think of the Franco-Belgian publishers, and the Franco-Belgian publishers are really dominant um, in that area in the way that Hollywood is in North American film, but at the same time, you do have specific national tendencies outside. You have important comic scenes in Helsinki and Stockholm and Lisbon uh, and so on, and so there are Italian comic scenes and Eastern European comic scenes and so on, German, uh, but all of those in many ways are subservient to the hugeness uh, that is uh, France and Belgium, which is by far the largest of, uh, of the markets for European comics and contains most of the large publishers, which would be Glenar, Casterman, Dargo, Dupuis, um, Lombard, others uh, like that, that publish the traditional four-color, uh, you know, 48-page hardcover album that uh, we've known as the European comics format par excellence for, for decades now. Although, of course, uh, a lot of the larger publishers have all started branching out into the more independent, which actually also, you know, would parallel uh, the American film industry. How, what do you yeah, mean? I, oh, go ahead, Bart. No, I, I would think actually, in a lot of ways, parallels the development of the American comic book industry as well. So well, that's too, that you, too, yes. If you have, uh, you know, for a long time, really up through the 1980s in France and Belgium, if you wanted to be published, you know, there were always some independents, in the same way that there were some undergrounds, but there were really dominant um, uh, dominant publishers. And in the 90s, a lot of that changed. We began to see a, a number of publishers that were more arts-oriented, more artist-first, and quite frankly, many of them modeled after the Fantagraphics model, the drawn and quarterly model, and taking their inspiration from the artists that published uh, with those publishers. And so we began to see definitely a much, you know, a much greater number of small publishers in, in France and Belgium that, uh, in addition to the 
huge ones that uh, are doing the the traditional series, and as Kim mentioned, branching out into uh, into kind of longer uh, novel length works as well. And of course, the the first big shift in terms of a major publisher getting more into that would be uh, Casterman in the '80s and the whole uh, Astrivola and Roman uh, Graphique uh, trend. But yeah, it was, it was gradual in the, sa- in the same way. Um, this may be a really l- large question. Um, but I guess, like, how do we get to, maybe I'll start in segments from going from, say, Hergé and Tintin to Blueberry in the 60s, um, what would you kind of, how would you define that growth or, um, where that came out of? Or, that was actually a relatively simple one. I mean, uh. I mean, there really isn't that much of a distance, I'd say, between uh, Tintin and uh, and Blueberry. I mean, both of them were adventure serials that were published for most of, uh, you know, for most of the uh, of their time in two page, two weekly pages in a magazine oriented to, toward kids and, and adolescents. Um, so I'm not. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that's <laughs> really one, of, one of one of the huger leaps. Uh, how about artistically? Uh. Or are yeah, they distinct? I guess, I guess I'm kind of drawing a blank. I mean, I'm not sure artistically in what sense. I mean, there uh, there was always a strong tradition of uh, quote-unquote realistic drawing as well uh, in European comics from the very beginning. I mean, they always had that kind of uh, that kind of material uh, that was influenced by the uh, American things uh, like uh, Alex Raymond and uh, you know and 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 Mandrake and and that kind of thing. Uh, I mean, those are all, all kind of the actually Tintin, if anything. Exists sort of like in between the uh, the cartoony tradition and the realistic tradition. Tintin is, is all of in, uh, sort of unique in its uh, in its own way. Uh, so yeah, I don't I don't I don't see a huge dif- difference really between between Tintin and Blueberry on that level. What what I would say, I, I mean, I think I, I get a sense of where Robin's coming from, and I, I think it's important to understand that in in France and Belgium, most comics were were serialized for decades in, as Kim mentioned, in two pages a week in, in weekly magazines like Tintin and Spirou, which were the two dominant ones for a long time. And in the 60s, uh, when Pilot comes along, it, it you know it is participating in that same sort of tradition. And it's really in the late 60s, and particularly the events that happen around. Uh, France and the strikes of May 1968, where a number of cartoonists start to think, hey, you know what, maybe we should be doing something other than this kid stuff. You know, the students are out in the streets, the workers are out in the streets, uh, there's a revolution in the air, and we're just doing this kind of, uh, you know, a lot of children's stuff, well-crafted children's stuff, but not really serious material. And that led... And, 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 of, course, and, of, course, and of course, you also have to bear in mind that there was, it was brewing before that uh, with stuff like the Alakiri and Charlie Mosserell. That exactly. material was, was there, but what happened after '68, in particular, was that it uh, that that uh, that Pilot became sort of the uh, the linchpin there of, of, of a predominantly kid adolescent magazine that did actually switch toward adults, and it sort of dragged sort of dragged the center of gravity of the whole industry with it. Yeah, exactly. And then <laughs> in the, in the wake of that, with the departure of a number of artists from Pilot, they go on to fo- you know found new magazines like Echo de Savant, Metal Orlant, and so on. And we begin in the 70s, I think, really, to see the rise of the kind of genre comics that you're talking about, Robin, with Blueberry taking on a more adult tone. And so, um, you know, the Blueberry series becomes darker and darker as it goes on. Uh, it becomes more mature in, 
its themes kind of more reflective on the myths of America. And we begin to see um, artists like uh, Giraud and Tardy and others doing kind of adult things or aspiring to more adult sensibility in uh, in genre comics. And that, I think, is one of the hallmarks of the 1970s. Yeah, what's, what's interesting about, about France is, and the Franco-Belgian comic tradition is that in its own way it was it was more well-developed and artistic mature, and what happened is that uh, the European cartoons were able to actually move gradually, whereas uh, in America they were stuck on such a stultified level that the breaks were all, like, really severe. Uh, in America, you know, there's, there's, no, there's no gradual transformation from Spider-Man to uh, Robert Crumb, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, on the other hand, in, in, in Europe, it, there was, they were able to, c- to conduct much more of a gradual slide to where cartoonists who were working, like someone like Gottlieb was working for Pilot magazine, doing work that was, you know, kid, adolescent type stuff, was able to actually convert smoothly into doing extremely adult material. Yeah, and I, I would say, you know, another example is there, there's a long tradition of the kind of dual address in in French comics. If you look at something like Asterix, which is, of course, very popular with children, but it's so well written by Gassini that adults would read it as well, and they would get a different sense from it. There's jokes that they would get and puns and so on that a small child wouldn't get. So that you always had this kind of uh, multiple audiences for uh, French comics in a way that you probably didn't have for the kind of mainstream uh, American comics, whether they're super superhero or Archie or so on, uh, that were targeted at a much younger audience. The asterisk kind of, or I mean not specifically asterisk, but I'm curious about the, um, how is it, like, as a North American or Western or Western Canada guy, um, looking at the European scene, I get this idea that it's this, like, kind of haven of comics where um, it's taken very seriously is it realistically like that is it does the myth live up to the reality I think it's you know still largely a myth I mean you know I've talked to so many cartoonists that will tell you stories. I remember when uh, Charles Barbarian and Philippe Dupuis were presidents of the Angoulême Festival, and I was riding in a cab through Angoulême uh, with one of them, one of, one of the other, and the cab driver said, well, what do you do? And uh, I think it was Philippe, he said, well, I'm the president of the the, uh, the festival this year, I'm a cartoonist. And he says, oh, you do comics? And he said, yeah. He says, what do you do? And he started listening to the titles, and the guy just kind of looked at him like, I've never heard of any of that. Like, what are you talking about? And this is, you know, somebody whose images were hanging all over the, uh, all over the city. I think there's, you know, there's a, a small number of publications that pay a great deal of attention to comics. Uh, Liberation, the, the daily left-wing uh, newspaper in Rakhotib, the... Uh, the uh, the music magazine, which is a kind of equivalent to Rolling Stone or Spin, Telerama, which is a television guide, they all review comics. I think it's much more common that you see press coverage of comics uh, and the Angoulême Festival and so on. Um, but at the same time, I think you know the United States is really catching up. Canada's mm-hmm. really catching up, and it, it's common to see you know Seth reviewing Ben Catcher in a national newspaper here in Canada uh, last week and so on. So I I think there. You know, roughly comparable now. I think for a long time, maybe France and Belgium were ahead, but um, I think the United States is catching up, or maybe France and Belgium are falling behind. <laughs> I think that that's, that's probably true, or, or or moving forward more slowly, and there's some catch up. And of course, I mean the, uh, I mean the proportion of uh, people who who read comics in uh, France is uh, 
hugely different from the proportion that reads uh, comics in the U.S. I mean, you can you can have you can still have the graphic novels that come out in in France that uh, where they're you know doing print runs of a million copies. Yeah, and if exactly. You then, if you if you then if you then compare that you know by population, I mean that would be uh, like uh, a uh, an American graphic novel selling tens of millions of copies, which ain't happening. Yeah, I think if you look at the success of someone like Zepp and Titoff, where you know they were able to print nine million copies of uh, one of his books every year, and he sells almost exclusively to a French-speaking uh, market, he doesn't—he's not well translated into German or Spanish, and, and so on. It's really astounding that you know they have certain successes like that that are you know where you're able to have cartoonists that really are almost household names. I mean, people that don't read comics uh, will often be familiar with uh, with those kinds of series in a way that, you know, maybe you would say, you know, Charles Schultz or, or Gary Trudeau has that kind of name recognition in the United right. States. And of course, and, and there are also their art comics that, I mean, I'm, I'm fairly sure that someone like Tardy does sell it, like in the six figures, which again, proportionately would mean uh, like uh, Dan Klaus selling uh, over a million here, which, yeah. uh, you know, more is the pity he doesn't. So there's definitely a proportion there, but it's it's, it's certainly it's certainly not the holy land no. where uh, people are, are, are you know strewing garlands no. of flowers before their feet as a cartoonist advance. We've moved the holy land to Japan. <laughs> there, there you go. Um, is there a particular reason you can touch on or define of why sales are so much more substantive there than North America? I, I would think that one of the the key things uh, is a, is historical, really, is the decision very early in French and, and Belgian comics publishing to to collect these things as books rather than as magazines. And so when Tintin was being serialized in the Belgian newspaper, um, they collected those as books. And people keep children's books in a way that they don't keep magazines. And um, when a book is kept in print, it means that the generation that grew up as kids reading it will then buy it for their own kids. I know I have a five-year-old and I'm buying him you know, all the same sorts of books that I read when I was five and six and seven, uh, because I wanted to share that experience. And so Tintin was passed down generation to generation in a way that, you know, Batman and Superman were not. Batman and Superman, they would just be thrown away or collected in plastic bags later on. Uh, and there's not that sense of continuity. Every generation had to discover uh, Batman or Superman or Spider-Man on their own, uh, afresh and anew. And so that kind of respect that gets built in, uh, that these works become classics for an entire nation uh, in the way that beloved children's books by Maurice Sendak or, or whoever else, Dr. Seuss, uh, become uh, over here in North America, has been really integral to the kind of respect that the form has and the kind of um, the comfort that I think readers have with, uh, with comics over in Europe. And, and they were, luck and they were kind of lucky in that, uh, you know, the guy... The guy that that was then uh, axed around uh, was a genius, and uh, yeah, that the work actually deserved that. I mean, you could, you could certainly, uh, you could have packaged, you know, Superman and Batman comics in beautiful hardcovers, and it probably wouldn't have worked as well because the material simply isn't as good. I, I was also thinking that there's a certain thing of um, standing the test of time, where the majority of mainstream North American work really is of its particular period, mm -hmm. and really. Two years later, it's very dated. Well, I just taught a, a I'm teaching a course on uh, comics right now in the English department here at the University of Calgary, and some we were reread uh, the Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay in that course, and a number of the students then became interested in Golden Age superhero comics as a result of Chabon, and 
so I made a number of them available to them, and they were all like, oh, these are going to be great, just kind of wild, wacky <laughs> things. And they all got like halfway through the first issue of Captain America and were like, oh, this is horrible. And a couple of them, you know, read some Captain Marvel and, and whatnot and were able to kind of get into what C.C. Beck was doing. But for the most part, it was like, wow, this is not the way we pictured it was going to be by the way Shabon uh, described it, because those comics really don't hold up. But if you read you know, certain French comics from the 1930s and 1940s, they're still very readable. They're still a very high level of craft. Oh, yeah. By the uh, time you get to the late books. 50s and, 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 the, and, and the early 50s, uh, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that is great and that is rewarding uh, you know, to, to anyone on multiple rereadings. And uh, even, the medi- even the mediocre stuff is uh, you know, relatively tolerable. It's an mm-hmm. entirely different level. Getting a little later, uh, you you touched on um, Mattel Herlant, and so I'm curious, what kind of change did that have internally in the European comic scene? Um, was it as impactful as, say, for North American readers reading heavy metal? I, I think the, the the big change was actually, uh, well, I think there was a certain level of change for, for some of the readers, and it... it expanded uh, you know the age range that that comics were going after but I think really one of the big changes was a kind of growing self-awareness in the 1970s that uh, comics were a, a genuine artistic form I think there's the influence certainly of the American underground uh, you know in trans some of it in translation or some of it just being uh, kind of crossing the the ocean but there's a, a real growing sense that you know this is a legitimate art form, and we can do whatever we want with it. Uh, now, a lot of those artists chose to do, you know, kind of space opera and science fiction uh, work that we might look back and say, well, it's not super sophisticated in terms of its uh, storytelling or its themes and, and so on. It uh, relies heavily on cliches. But the, the, the sense that, um, you know, people could proclaim that they are a comics artist. They're not just a cartoonist, but an artist working in the comics form. Uh, it really begins to to come to a head in, in the 1970s. Any additions to that, Kip? And there was also <laughs> a, a refinement in simply the production. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look something at back something like a Mobius's Arzac, and that was really a pretty stunning eye-opener just in terms of uh, the level of care devoted to uh, the uh, the coloring and the reproduction of it that wasn't necessarily uh, that uh, common in uh, the other European comics at the time. Yeah, I think that the glossy printing really helps, and especially when we start seeing artists moving to direct color, uh, like right. uh, Mobius in those instances, and Bilal and, and others, who really uh, begin to, to blow away what's being done. Uh, yeah, direct color is what we probably here would call more like, like the more painted color, as opposed, okay. to, to, as opposed to flat color. So where the color was photographed, not ruby lithed. Right, although actually some of the flat color was actually done by by watercolors too. But just 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 uh, yeah, use of the color as more of a drawing element than just as a as a as a flat element to uh, you know tie together the line work. Mm-hmm. You touched on this a little bit of the impact on underground comics, um, and I've heard a little bit about how there really was an impact from Robert Crumb. Can is there a way of to kind of defining that? Um, I, I mean. I, uh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Bart. Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, the number of cartoonists that, you know, of a certain generation that you talk to all over Europe, uh, 
who say, wow, I first saw Cromit, you know, it changed my life, and uh, saw, you know, somebody had been to the United States, and they picked up this underground comic, and they brought it back, and um, someone like Max, for example, uh, just talks about that impact of Crumb is just literally blowing his mind, in the same way that he did for, you know, a whole generation of American cartoonists as well, it was really, really impactful, and one of the, the things that's interesting about Crumb is his work was never um, that uh, that widely translated. I mean, there wasn't the kind of comprehensive uh, reprinting uh, of his work, certainly the Fantagraphics was done, but uh, it's really late, uh, as recently as you know, the last decade, a lot of his work was not available um, in French, but he was just this artist who, you know, obviously has this tremendous influence uh, wherever he goes, and a whole generation of cartoonists uh, started to pick up on that, particularly after Futuropolis did, you know, this, this large uh, collection of, large but short collection of his work, and you can start to see, you know, in Holland and in France, uh, his impact uh, really uh, peeking out from a lot of corners in the 1970s, and then increasingly in the 1980s. And it's also interesting, the two of the really major figures in, uh, in, in, Frank, in uh, French comics, René Goscinny and uh, Mobius were also both heavily influenced uh, by uh, EC slash Mad Magazine. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's definitely there's already that uh, that that vein running through French comics from that American source. The Kurtzman. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, uh, René René actually was a good friend of Kurtzman's and uh, lived in the U.S. for a number of years. There are great photos of them hanging out and him being part of the almost part of the EC gang. Didn't he do something for help? I can't remember. Or was around for something in help? I, I don't know that he directly did that, uh, but uh, he they, they definitely uh, hung out, and I know that uh, that that, Kurtz, that <coughs> Kurtzman did some translations and stuff that Gussini had worked on, and uh, they were they were they were very close, and uh, certainly uh, Mad was uh, a uh, huge influence on uh, Pilot when it uh, moved more toward uh, the uh, away from the traditional adolescent kids comics and more toward the uh, current events uh, satire type work. Now we've been talking a lot about the Franco-Belgian magazines and scenes. Um, one scene I'm curious about, want to lo- know a little bit more about, is the Italian scene, where you're seeing folks like Hugo Pratt, um, Guido Crepex, and uh, Milo Manera coming out of. It's I don't know if you can like create some kind of narrative there of kind of how that's different from what you're seeing in France, or is it really that different? Well, in a lot of ways, it's very integrated with what's going on in France, partly because um, there's a situation for a long time, and in fact it continues to a certain degree to this day, that if you wanted to become a famous Italian cartoonist, you had to become a famous Italian cartoonist in France first. Um, and a lot of these cartoonists would work for French-language uh, magazines and then have their, their books come out in France and then be translated back into Italian, which is a very uh, <laughs> bizarre kind of, uh, kind of situation. Um, but, you know, Italy had this, you know, really um, exciting kind of visual uh, style to it um, with people like Matodi and, and so on, uh, many of whom uh, were involved, and Igor. Uh, many of whom were involved in teaching in Bologna and the art schools there and the Valvoline group. And there was, you know, Italy produced in the 70s and 80s some 
really fantastic, fantastic uh, magazines under the editorial direction of Igor. Um, you know, some of which folded very quickly, some of which had spectacular production. I was once told, uh, not by Igor, so I don't know how uh, so how accurate this is, that you know, these some of these magazines will be funded as lost leaders for the mob to uh, for the mafia to launder money and so on. And you think, <laughs> wow, if that's true, you know, we need to have more organized crime involvement in the comics industry because um, they were able to do um, some really kind of radical and experimental stuff in the 1980s, in the 1970s and 1980s uh, in particular, and I think that had a tremendous impact on, on the rest of Europe. Kim, any, any changes to the Fantagraphics uh, business plan now? <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that, that sounds like it has potential. <laughs> No comment. Um, how, how do you know we aren't already doing that? I mean, clearly something like Fantagraphics can't survive on actually publishing good comics. <laughs> that would be why there's all the motorbikes outside the Fantagraphics office. Um, I kind of want to know a little bit more about the Italian. I still feel like there's, like, especially Hugo Pratt, how is he important because we really have in North America no idea about him except for like a handful of folks that have some Corte Maltese books well, well Pratt's a, you know an absolute legend I mean um, I thought Baru this year when he was president of Angoulême he had a, a very striking uh, poster that he made for the festival um, and it's a, a Portrait of some of his characters standing in front of graffiti of the great uh, of the great cartoonists, and he has a kind of Mount Rushmore up up there, and, and it's uh, in front of the characters, and it's Hergé, uh, Frank, and uh, and Pratt, and I mean, you know, he is at that level. He is um, an undisputed master uh, of the form. He's an amazing, amazing, amazing visual stylist, and I think if you go anywhere uh, and talk to European uh, cartoonists of a certain age, they grew up reading him, they idolize uh, him to a certain extent, and even when their visual style um, isn't in directly influenced by him, if it's more influenced by uh, the Frank Hand School or the Ayrshire School, uh, for example, they still people still marvel at what he does. I mean, you can find comprehensive collections of his work in, in French and Italian and Spanish and German uh, and so on. I mean, he's just that important, one of the top five or six cartoonists maybe ever to come out of Europe. He's certainly one of the most significant uh, European cartoonists that, that who is not at all available in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Is there any, do you know of any reason why? Is it just... My understanding, I haven't actually pursued this uh, myself, but my understanding is that he's uh, one of those cartoonists who are so undisputably great uh, that uh, the, uh, the ones who control the rights have unreasonable expectations for what they can expect to get for uh, his publishing. Uh, so my understanding is that uh, certain other American publishers have tried and failed to secure the rights because uh, the uh, <coughs> the bar is set so high for mm -hmm. uh, what is expected to, to be paid for him. Not unreasonably, you know, given his uh, global greatness, but unreasonably given what one could expect to sell in the U.S. It's pretty fascinating over the last couple of years seeing it bounce from publisher to publisher and still nothing has arised in the U.S. or or English-speaking markets because I'd heard like Heavy Metal at one point was looking at publishing his work and then there's this Welsh publisher and oh, now... Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
generally, I mean, uh, if at this point, if uh, if you look at a major European cartoonist uh, that you think really, why is that person not being published in uh, the uh, U.S.? Uh, that probably is going to be one of the uh, major reasons that huh. uh, you know that just they, people aren't just able to just to strike any kind of deal. Yeah. It's the the realities we're dealing with here. Yep. Now, it Bart, your book um, specifically looks at the 1990s in France, and how is that kind of such a significant touch point for well, European think, comics? Yeah, I think a lot changed in the 1990s, um, as they did in, in American comics as well. Um, the 1980s. I mean, we talked a bit about the you know up to the 60s and 70s. We we haven't talked about the 1980s much at all so far, and I think there's a good reason for that, which is the 1980s were kind of awful uh, in terms of French comics. It was a real nadir in a lot of ways. Um, publishers, you know, fell on some hard economic times, and it, the only way to get published, it seemed, at a certain point around 1987 or 1988, was to draw exactly like Mobius. I mean, it was like everybody was just looking for clones and doing this kind of science fiction, doing this kind of genre stuff, and it, it was a really dead, dead time in, in terms of, of great comics. And you had a generation in an, in starting in 1990 um, where one of the only good publishers out there, the publisher that was doing the best work, was Futuropolis, uh, which was a very, you know, small publisher run by a couple of people, very... Uh, you know, very precarious economic situation, uh, like an independent in the United States at the, at the time. And um, you had this generation led by Menu and Trondheim and David B. and so on that started publishing in an anthology for them called Labo, which was short for Laboratory, they had an exhibition at Angoulême, and they did one issue of this anthology, and then Futuropolis went out of business. And so they were left thinking, what are we going to do now? And they decided they would create an association, and they created L'Association, uh, which means the association, and uh, started publishing, you know, small press, mini-comics, uh, black and white kind of things that would be very familiar, I think, to uh, American readers uh, who lived through the 1990s and the small press movement um, on, on this side of the Atlantic. That publisher had this tremendous, tremendous impact, and um, they began to publish, you know, some people who are now undisputably the great cartoonists of the last uh, 20 years, David B., Louis Trondheim, Joanne Sfar, uh, Marjan Satrapi, uh, Dupuis and Berberion, uh, and so on. And so their influence then led to a variety of other small publishers, uh, Freon and Amok and Zankiem Kush and others, coming out and carving out uh, similar space of kind of artistic experimentation that was very much in line with what Fanographics or Drawn Quarterly uh, were doing over here. That is, arts first, non-genre uh, comics that, that explore a lot of different visual styles, non-traditional visual styles. Um, and so on. And so there's this enormous, enormous explosion um, during the 1990s and this whole generation of kind of uh, pent-up um, talent that had nowhere to go that finally said, you know what, we're going to do it um, ourselves and we're going to do it our own way. Uh, and so really took on the kind of hegemony of the, the full-color album and the serialized storytelling and so on that had dominated French publishing for a long time and said, you know, yeah, but my you can't, yeah, I think. Yeah, you, you can't you, you have you can't skip over though. Uh, I think uh, Astrival and, and Casterman in the '80s. I mean, I think that was pretty significant. 
in terms of non-genre work and in terms of uh, allowing cartoonists to control their own destiny in terms of going outside of the 48-page uh, uh, album format and the full-color format. Yeah, um, I, I, I think I think you're absolutely right there. And there was other, there were small other, aside from Futuropolis, other small publishers in the 1980s who were doing yeah, uh, yeah. doing kind of interesting work with Serge Claire and and uh, and others and Yves Chalon, obviously. Um, so yeah, when I call the 80s a wasteland, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't. It was most, I would mostly wasteland, but uh, yeah. But there were a few jewels kind of thrown in there. I think in the nineties, and, 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 and also, and those also certainly served, I think, as a seed and, and inspiration to some degree for the nineteen nineties generation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, particularly Tardy, I, particularly Tardy, I would say, but other people, uh, other people as well, were working back then, like like Boudouin and uh, was then, and someone like, uh, well, actually, a lot of the cartoonists, for instance, that appeared in Raw in the eighties were were, right. from, were from that, like like Francis Mas, for instance, would be one, and. Uh, is this the kind of the era that Jose Munoz was coming out of as well? Exactly. Yeah, Munoz is another one who was who was very active, uh, and again was someone who was who was act who who was active uh, in in the French, in the French publishing, and you know got his legitimacy uh, there, even though he wasn't he wasn't French. Uh, but yeah, so I'm um, just 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 trying just trying to def- defend <laughs> the eighties from uh, from Bart's wrath. <laughs> <laughs> um, you were talking uh, about the. The scene that came out of the association. Um, how was what was the commercial response? Did readers latch on, or did it take a while no, to it, sink in? It definitely took a while. I mean, if you those, those first editions of some of those association books are have actually become very valuable collector's items because the print runs were a couple of hundred copies or a thousand copies, um, and so on. I mean, they were working with very, very, very small numbers, and then a number of them began to have great success. And so, if you look at the six volumes as it was originally published of David B's Epileptic. Um, as it was released in France, the numbers kind of get larger and larger um, over time. If you look at the early works of Louis Trondheim, they sold not particularly well, and then increasingly well, and then he moves to uh, Dargo and starts publishing there, and Delcourt and starts publishing there, and kind of moves into uh, the mainstream. But the initial uh, the initial comics were, you know, they were hard to get outside of France. I remember living in Montreal at the time, and there was one store that was importing them directly from L'Association and from Mamak and from France, uh, and they were phenomenally expensive for us because it was just one store and there was no distribution in North America and so on because they were really you know a very 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 small press um, at the time and l'association hasn't grown to be a huge press um, they're still you know relatively yeah. small with seven well, also in large in large part because uh, uh, those cartoonists who actually had achieved commercial success uh, like uh, Trondheim and uh, David B have uh, tended to be siphoned off by the large publishers as a result and uh, L'Association now finds itself in that in the position of having of being like even more alternative because anything that uh, has been uh, was uh, in sort of in between, you know, uh, mainstream and alternative uh, has sort of moved upward, which is a little bit right. like the situation here with uh, with Pantheon, you know, grabbing uh, the uh, grabbing <laughs> the cartoon. <laughs> and and I, w- I would say that the, one of the things that's striking about L'Association is the fact that Marjane Satrapi has has stayed with them, and her loyalty to the the publisher that has given her that break is, is really astounding, even though she's not working on comics right now and is making a second film, but uh, 
you know, it, for the most part, it has been difficult for these people. And this, the, the tendency that came to be known as La Nouvelle Bande Sine, the new comics um, in France in the 90s, which was uh, people like Emmanuel Guibert and Trondheim and David B. and Sfar and so on, many of whom are, well, all of whom are friends and many of whom shared a studio um, in Paris together for a long time. They've all kind of made the transition now away from the, you know, from l'association and the small press uh, roots. They've kind of graduated um, onward and upward, um, like an, you know, an indie band that finally signs to a major label, um, and so that you know has had real consequences for l'association as we've seen. If any, if uh, your listeners have been following um, the situation that's happened with l'association and their strike in January, which is still, I guess, ongoing at, at this point, as they try and chart a new path forward with only the you know the kind of real cutting edge artists uh, left there you got to say something yeah, particularly yeah. and uh, and part of, I mean part of it's also a, a personality issue there's uh, there's also sort of like weird things going on there that the uh, but, uh, but yeah I think it's safe to say that without Persepolis uh, that l'association would be, would be long gone uh, I mean that uh, really has uh, been carrying them through some lean times the enormous success of that you know in the same way that without peanuts Fantagraphics would be long gone is there something uniquely French about a comics publisher or the employees striking? <laughs> um, I'm waiting. Yeah. I'm waiting for, for the for the blog coverage of the, fan, the forthcoming Fantagraphic strike. <laughs> <laughs> I think someone just emptied out their beer fridge and they're just upset. Kim, <laughs> refill it. Um, Kim, do you want to touch on? Because I mean, you you know you are. Part, big part of Fantagraphics and a big part of um, I'd say particularly your publishing direction has been the the European work over the last couple of years in going back further with um, Tardy, Big and Graphic Story Monthly, Eons Ago uh, a long um, relationship with Jason what is your particular um, focus on publishing this European work? Um, well, I just publish stuff that uh, I like and that I think that uh, Americans should be able to read and that I don't think will be uh, devastating financial uh, fiascos. Uh, so it's, it's it's really, it's very eclectic. I mean, even more so in the last couple of years, I just started going, what the hell, and uh, publishing pretty much anything that I like. <laughs> and uh, it's, not, not, it's not been really much more focused than that. that that's a... That's a pretty um, elaborate marketing strategy. <laughs> well, throw it at the wall and see what sticks. You never know. Uh, I mean, I remember, uh, I mean, as, as I recall, uh, there were people in the office when we published the first uh, Jason book who, who said, well, that's awfully nice and I like it, uh, but boy, is that going to lose money? And uh, as it turns out, uh, Jason actually became one of our, uh, you know, juggernauts, someone that we can expect to put out a new book and uh, sell out a reasonable amount on and reprint, and it has done very well for us. So you just never know. Uh, frankly, most of the European comics that we publish, by any objective accounting standard, really more or less do lose money. Uh, I mean, if, uh, if we actually paid someone to translate them, they'd certainly be in the red. Mm -hmm. And you translate all of them? Uh, the majority of them. Uh, I've started farming out a few things to uh, other translators simply because there's too damn much for me to do. But uh, on balance, I do just about all of them, yes. 
at the same time, you've also been translating European work. Um, you were involved in RAW back in the day, doing some translation work for them. Um, was that work that you kind of were pushing, or was that stuff that uh, Francois Oz and uh, Art Spiegelman uh, they wanted to have? Oh no, no, that was that was totally. I mean, Francois obviously being French and Art being uh, uh, tied into that scene, they knew exactly what they wanted. Uh, I was never involved in any level of decision or even proposal because they knew exactly what they wanted and what they were doing. And if anything, uh, they were bringing out stuff uh, that I wasn't aware of. So I was totally a, a, a hired hand at the time. That once in a while they would have a story that they would say, hey, do you want to do that? And I would say, sure. And uh, just did it for the fun. Bart, last year um, before TCAF, I went to that little academic conference um, at the University of Toronto there. And you were talking about... Um, a couple of French cartoonists, a team that do performance work. Um, right. Florent uh, Rupert and Jerome Moulot. Which, maybe tell listeners a little bit about that because it's so so different from anything we can expect in it, North America. Fun. It's funny, I'm sitting in front of my computer here and I just got an email from an exceptionally famous American cartoonist uh, asking about uh, Rupert and Moulot and so um, hopefully that's going to um, I haven't even read the email, but hopefully it, it's about uh, translating or something. I think Rupert and Moulot are, are the two cartoonists uh, right now that I think are the most exciting going on, uh, at least in French-speaking Europe. I think for a number of years I would walk around the Angoulême Festival, which I've now been to 15 years in a row, and think there's nothing going on. I'm, and I don't want to get into an 80s situation where I say there's nothing, but I mean, there were certainly <laughs> great cartoonists popping up all over the place. Olivier Schrauen, who Fantagraphics is translating Brecht Devon to others, uh, who you go, they're new young guys, and you think, wow, these are really major talents, uh, and so on. But the the major talents seemed sort of isolated from each other. They seemed to pop up in all over the place, and it didn't seem to be this sense of a, a great movement, um, like there had been with L'Association and other French publishers 20 years ago. And so there didn't seem to be that sense of a generational shift. And at, at one point I, I decided that maybe one of the problems was that there was nothing left for the young cartoonists to kick against. I mean, the, the guys in the 90s were really like, we hate, you know, especially if you read uh, menus, uh, editorials, and so on, it's like, we hate you, Dargo, we hate you, Casterman, we hate these mainstream publishers, and they're all crap, and we're going to get rid of you, we're going to overthrow you, and I do think for artistic movements, there has to be a certain sense of you know, killing off your forebears and saying, we're nothing like you. And if you look at the underground, there's certainly a sense of, we're nothing like the rest of the American comic book industry. Now, of course, it's so wide open, you can do anything you want. If you want to do a hand-printed uh, comic uh, printed on cardboard and sell it for 80 euros in an edition of 12, there's a market for that. I mean, you can do whatever you want. There aren't those kinds of constraints, which I think in some ways is very liberating, but in other ways has meant that people don't uh, know where to go, and um, what I've started to notice is there's a whole generation of cartoonists now that have come up through the art schools, have come up through the art schools in France and the, and the, uh, the rest of uh, Europe, and they're making comics now with a real awareness of 20th century art, of uh, modernism and uh, all its art movements and, and into postmodernism, and they're sort of saying, hey, why 
were comics not a part of this? Um, why did comics miss out on a lot of this? And so you end up with people like Rupert and Lulot who do comics together. They both write and they both draw. They're like Dupuis and Barbarian in that respect. Uh, and they publish, uh, they publish a number of uh, books with L'Association. Uh, but they also do performance art, essentially, uh, around comics. And so at the Luzerne, uh, Luzerne's Fumetto Festival a few years ago, they did a, a live comics-creating performance inside a tiger cage at the side um, of the lake. I just saw an exhibition that they did in Le Havre in the fall where they integrated comics with um, kind of hand-done animation that they did with strobe lights and uh, and um, turntables. Uh, and so they're really interested in this idea of moving comics um, towards or more closely aligned with, uh, with the art world. For some people, this is a horrible thing. I mean, some people just kind of look at them and say, how could you possibly... Uh, want to do this. I remember at Angoulême, I guess it was two years ago, standing with a, a very well-known um, cartoonist and watching a, a live dance performance that had been choreographed by Rupert Mulot. And this other cartoonist, who I probably shouldn't uh, name, said, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. And he said, uh, why would we ever want to integrate comics and dance? This is uh, not what comics do well. This is not what comics should be about. We shouldn't be trying to uh, cater to museum situations and so on. Comics should just be comics. They should be, you know, rock and roll, kind of underground, kind of lowbrow, um, and so on. And to a certain extent, I can be sympathetic to people that hold that opinion, but I'm also very intrigued by these people that are, are trying new things and trying to push the comics forms in really, really unexpected uh, directions. And so Rupert and Moulot are, are two of the guys that, that do that. In addition, uh, you know, they're just really very funny. Um, their work <laughs> is very witty and ironic. And uh, it's a shame right now that I don't think there's a plan to bring out their work in English. I know Alvin Buenavichero was going to do a book, but uh, when his uh, imprint went out of business, I, I think that has maybe left them in limbo. And so uh, hopefully in, in the future there'll be uh, a space for them. I actually saw an anthology called Tunes, um, an English... Like, it's a collection of uh, French cartoonists doing stories of North American rockers that has a short story by them in it. it oh, right, yes. They did a thing about... Is it about Motorhead? I have no idea. It's like there's, you know, 30 different cartoonists in this book. I haven't picked it up yet. Right. It's just kind of like I saw it in a arts bookstore and kind of unexpected thing. I don't know anything about it, but it turns out I think it's the same publisher that's last I heard planning on doing the the Court of Maltese but as right. we said I, before we'll see what happens with that. <laughs> I think with, with Rupert and Mulot, there's a real sense that you know they're going to be important figures um, you know they're both in their uh, probably mid-twenties right now so they're still both very young but the, the number of shows that they've had at, at, uh, at comic festivals all across Europe and they've had two already a couple of major shows at, at Angoulême um, you know I think there's they're a duo that's been picked for uh, uh, for big things in the future. Mm -hmm. it, it's quite exciting right now, especially you mentioned earlier Brett Evans. Um, his two books are also something that really, I think, North American readers are really jumping on because they're just so full of life and energy, which you're not really seeing as much of nowadays. Yeah, I mean, he's an absolutely amazing talent. I remember when I first... Uh, uh, first met him and buying a copy of his book in Dutch because it wasn't translated 
into French or English at, at that time. And I'm, that's always a sign for me that I think somebody's going to be really uh, exciting and significant when I, I'm willing to buy a copy of their book in a language that I, I can't read or can barely work my way through, <laughs> uh, like Dutch or Finnish. <laughs> is that ever a problem for you, Kim? <laughs> uh, Finnish is, yes. Uh, Finnish and uh, the, uh, you know, the, the Eastern, uh, Eastern Bloc languages. The rest... The rest I can balloon my way through. Um, tell me a little bit about the importance of someone like uh, Drew Swart. Because, um, I mean, he... North American readers have, have latched onto him. Um, what What is it about him that people really jumped on? I, I think one of the, the great appeals of, of his work is, is that unbelievably meticulous line. I mean, um, his, his drawings are just so so beautiful for me. I know that's that's you know very subjective and and things that I find striking and beautiful others might be alienated by. But um, there's a there's a warmth and a liveliness to his line there that that's really appealing uh, and sometimes appealing well beyond the scope of uh, of some of his stories. And I I think he, you know a lot of his illustration work and so on it has tremendous wit about it. And uh, you know he's just a very very uh, intelligent thoughtful guy when it comes to uh, cartooning. I've I'm, I'm been fortunate to know Yost for many years and consider him a friend, and it's, uh, I'm still always amazed by what he's able to do with a pen. I mean, I would watch him draw for the hours uh, if the opportunity arose, because uh, he's just such a fascinating, fascinating graphic stylist. Kim, do you have anything to add? I, I agree, and he, <laughs> and, he's, and he just he appropriated like one of the Great cartooning styles of the 20th century, Hergé, and just uh, subverted it to his own ends in a really fascinating way. Um, as, as, as I'm sure you know, we've been uh, getting ready to release a collection of uh, all of his uh, comics work, which is a surprisingly small amount once you exclude uh, the, uh, the, the the kids' work. Uh, and uh, it's uh, it's it's really quite amazing to see it all packaged together in one in one spot. And I. I wish he could do more comics, but he's busy designing, you know, buildings and cathedrals and uh, doing commercial work. Uh, and uh, uh, I guess he's just uh, done with comics. Yeah. Uh, he uh, he designed or had a part in designing the Hergé Museum. Am I correct? Yeah, he uh, he correct. Yeah. Yeah, he worked with the architects there and designed the overall flow. And uh, it was um, really the architect whose name I'm I'm blanking on, and, and Yost and Terry Grinstein. Um, the scholar who uh, conceptualized the organization of uh, of that museum and uh, the way that the the work would flow between I think it's seven rooms. It's been a, a year and a half since I've been there, but uh, the seven or eight rooms that that constitute the main collection there. We're kind of nearing the end of the hour, and I'm curious: is there any particular works that you think folks should check out um, European that's been translated, um, or even? Canadian that's been translated. I, I'm going to let Bart feel that because obviously my self-interest is going to come to the fore. And you can you, you you can you can shill yourself, Kim. <laughs> well, I I mean I was uh, I, I'm not sure if Santa, if I if someone told me Santa Graphics is, is doing uh, Jill uh, Jordan is that right, Kim? Yeah, it's going to the printer next week. Oh, that's we're doing we're doing we're doing Jill Jordan and we're doing Sibylline. Oh, that's utterly fantastic. I mean, I would heartily recommend uh, those works to anybody uh, when those came out. I know that Fangraphics is also doing uh, Olivier Shrowan's new book, which I just 
uh, reviewed uh, last week, I guess it was, or the week before, on Comics Reporter, which is another great book. He's a he's an amazing young talent uh, as well. Brushed Evans is an amazing, amazing um, young talent. Um, there are people, you know, all over the place. And Jordan Quarterly was uh, doing Amanda Vahimaki's uh, work, which is really, really striking. Um, there's yeah, there's tons and tons and tons of of good work being put out right now in English by European creators, uh, which has not always been the case. I mean, it sometimes comes in waves, but there's a long time when not much, especially after you know Catalan uh, got out of uh, of publishing European comics a long time ago, that there's you know very fallow periods. But now there's just so much. Uh, coming out that is is really amazing. Jason's new book, which is the first one that he uh, he's worked with a, a writer, and he's just illustrated. Uh, I just read yesterday and uh, absolutely love. So um, it's it's it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's odd, yeah, because that's one that we just we just printed printed right now, and it's uh, people people have been alarmed at the, the idea that oh, we got another writer, but. If we just put it out without a writer's credit, people thought it was pure Jason. Uh, the guy yeah. is an, ama- an amazing mimic. He created a perfect Jason book, one, in fact, one of the best Jason books. Uh, <laughs> I throw into the mix, too, I want to... Uh, we're going to be publishing more work by Nicholas Mahler, who's someone who's appeared only a couple of times, but who I think is really, really great. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we just signed for one book, and we're, we're going to be uh, signing for another one. Um, and are, I'm are hoping... Doing, I'm sorry? Are you doing, a- are you doing Angel Man for uh, Exactly, yeah. And uh, I'd like to do Flash Go sometime, and uh, basically I'd like to do all of his work. Uh, I'd love to do what I do, you know, put out, you know, just put out all of it because he's just he's just hilarious. I think he's the possibly the funniest cartoonist working today. And um, the one thing about though, I want to turn to allude a little back to, uh, you know, the mushroom and uh, the uh, the Tillier is that uh, the one gap I see is that a lot of the classic kids European comic, uh, Franco-Belgian comics from the 50s and 60s isn't available and some of that stuff really is the best that uh, there is to offer uh, I would recommend uh, one one of my favorites is uh, Blake and Mortimer which uh, has actually been released in a pretty nice edition uh, by Cine Books and which is available and that people should hunt down because that is uh, one of the great classics yeah, and one of the others that I really uh, love, and I'm reading to my five-year-old right now, is the fact that NBM is bringing the Smurfs back, um, the the Peo stories, which it's, I found that really striking. That I tried to read my son a number of uh, American uh, kids' comics that he had almost no interest in, uh, even if they were based on franchises that he'd watched the movies of and so on. Uh, as soon as we switched over to the Franco-Belgian kids' material through Peo, he just howls with laughter. I mean, and these things are really stood test of time. Uh, the Smurfs are amazing. I mean, the, the, the King Smurf is, is like one of the maybe half dozen great European uh, albums. I tell people that, and they sort of look at me a little uh, dubiously, <laughs> but uh, uh, just in terms, I mean, certainly Peyo's craft is there, and uh, especially when he was working with uh, Del Porte, uh, the, uh, the, the, the satirical life is there as well. Well, thank you both. Um for coming on and joining me for this chat. A lot of uh, interesting information for listeners to kind of jump on and learn from. Um, I'd say continue checking out the the European work that Fenographics is publishing. One person I'm really excited about who I hope you do more work by is uh, Stéphane Blanchette um, who I've got... Blanquet? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, Blanquet, uh, that that that's quite all right. Uh, I know that his problem has been most that most of his work has been put out in these uh, weird little sort of boutique collections. That uh, and what I'm waiting for is that his big his publisher uh, Cornelius in France is getting ready to put out uh, a 
fairly large collection integrating a lot of those and creating something that's more bookstore friendly just uh, you know for a more general public and we're waiting for that uh, I know that Blanquet does have serious health problems and I'm wondering if that is uh, part of what has been holding it but I I have my message uh, uh, over at the Cornelius that you know when you have a book then by God we will do it uh, well, I, it... I should I should add one thing if I can add that you know it's a little bit tighter since you're not doing it live yeah, yeah go ahead that, uh, I uh, I have a I have a list of European cartoonists that we're either currently working on or uh, planning to work on, or that uh, I would like to work on, and uh, right now number is forty. <laughs> Periodically, I send <laughs> updates to Eric and to Gary and say this is what I'm doing, this is what I'm planning, and uh, I could easily, if I just loosen my uh, you know my uh, criteria a little bit more, get up to fifty or sixty. So uh, there's no shortage of work to be done there. I've got one quick question with that because you're also involved in the Monera translating for Dark Horse. Uh-huh. So it's it seems like less of a focus on having this as a, you know, publishing imprint as much as just making sure this work is available. Uh, yeah. I mean, Monera is just a, a really a matter of that uh, I was asked and I had a little extra time and I think I use some freelance work and uh, you know. Uh, uh, build back up my 401k, <laughs> 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 which suffered lately, and uh, I enjoy Monara's work. So uh, you know, and I love working with Dana Schutz. So yeah. that's how that came about. Okay. Uh, well, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, can't it wait. Be sweet. Uh, I can't wait to see the, the Giuseppe Bergman books for more folks to read. Yeah, those are those are down the line. I mean, we're working on uh, the. Uh, I finished the first two, working on the third, and we haven't hit those yet, so it's going to be a few years. But uh, I understand that they're going to be cranking them out on a quarterly basis, so there'll be a lot of them. Oh, très bien. Um, thank you both so much for joining me. Or, in his oh. case, molto bene. <laughs> Viens petite fille dans mon comic strip Viens faire des bulles, viens faire des Des, 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 et des Je distribue les swings et les uppercuts Ça fait, ça fait, et ça fait Ou bien, ou parfois même Viens petite fille dans mon comic strip Viens faire des bulles, viens faire des Des, 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 et des Viens avec moi par-dessus le building Ça fait quand on s'envole et puis Après quoi je fais Et ça fait Ferme les yeux, embrasse-moi. Smack your bam, pow, 
Shabam, pow, blow, whizz.